Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 302, The Stages of Trinitarian Commitment. Today's episode of the Trinity's podcast is a presentation I gave online on August 1st, 2020, as a part of Restoration Fellowship's Theological Conference. This presentation is a little bit different. In a way, it's kind of sociological rather than the philosophical and theological topics I normally stick to. It describes different typical positions that people find themselves in with respect to, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a subject I've been mulling over for several years, and I hope that you find it useful. I do recommend the YouTube version of this episode. I think the presentation is a little bit easier to follow with the dozens of slides that I've prepared. Still, if you want to try it audio only, I think you'll be able to follow it pretty well. So without further ado, over to me. In this talk, I'm going to describe six stages that people go through with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. I know about these stages because in the course of my life, I have gone through all six of them. There's a natural progression to them, but none of these changes are inevitable. In fact, nearly all Christians spend their lives at the first stage, and one can hunker down at any of the second through the fifth stages too. Many people will skip some of the middle stages, but this is not necessarily a bad thing, as I'll explain. And occasionally, a person will regress. So you may not need to go through all of the stages like I did, but the most important questions are, which stage are you at, and do you understand why some people move on to that next stage? If so, what is keeping you from following them? If asked, many will say, Of course I believe in the Trinity, whatever it is. I'm a Christian, aren't I? I mean, Christians, by definition, believe in the Trinity. The Trinity is the Christian view of God. The first stage where most Christians are at is what I call being a paper Trinitarian. That is, you're a member of a group which has something about the triune God in its official statement of faith. So in that sense, on paper, you count as a Trinitarian. But you may not have enough beliefs to properly count as having a Trinitarian theology. Perhaps you entirely avoid the subject, or your opinions are officially heretical according to standard sources. Every few years, Christian pollsters ask theological questions of paper Trinitarians and are dismayed at many of their, quote, heretical answers. In many Christian traditions, the idea of God as a trinity of essentially divine persons plays little to no role in day-to-day life. It is not preached on. It is barely sung about. It mostly comes up when mentioning dastardly cults which deny it. But there is no it. Paper Trinitarians, when they think about the Trinity at all, which is rare, bounce around between incompatible ideas about what it means to say that God is three persons. Are the Trinity supposed to be God's three personalities? Three aspects? Three roles? Three gods? God and two somewhat divine friends, a tripartite God, each person being one of God's proper parts, or is it all inexpressible profundity? This sort of confusion reigns. They are together verbally, but not mentally. Confusion and therefore avoidance, these are the status quo. 
Trinitarian theologians often lament that the laity, most of them, are hardly Trinitarian at all, in the sense that they lack adequate Trinitarian beliefs, and often have beliefs which are incompatible with God being the Trinity. Canadian evangelical theologian Randall Rouser writes, As Roman Catholic theologian Karl Rahner observed some decades ago, now he's quoting Rahner, Despite the Orthodox confession of the Trinity, Christians are, in their practical life, almost mere monotheists. We must be willing to admit that, should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature could well remain virtually unchanged. Dr. Rouser continues, One can test Rahner's observation in the following way. Picture a Baptist pastor who, while praying for the communion elements, thanks the Father for dying for us. Chances are that nobody will even flinch. He's right. And I don't know about you, but I don't have to merely imagine such a situation. I can remember it, having actually been in a church service like that. Yep, Southern Baptist. Now, why is this? Given the Trinity statements in their official creeds, why is it that most Christians are barely Trinitarian at all? Reformed apologist Dr. James White puts his finger on some of the problems. He writes, So why don't we talk about loving the Trinity? Most Christians do not understand what the term means and have only a vague idea of the reality it represents. We don't love things that we consider very complicated, obtuse, or just downright difficult. We confess how little we understand about the Trinity by how little we talk about it and how little emotion it evokes in our hearts. It's the topic we don't talk about. No one dares question the Trinity for fear of being branded a heretic. Yet we have all sorts of questions about it, and we aren't sure who we can ask. Many believers have asked questions of those they thought more mature in the faith, and have often been confused by the contradictory answers they received. Deciding it is best to remain confused, rather than have one's orthodoxy questioned, many simply leave the topic for that mythical future day when I have more time. This is the status quo and has not changed one bit since James White wrote those words in 1998. And it's not merely a failure of religious education or a product of apologists and pastors slacking off when it comes to their Trinitarian tutoring. It is important to recognize that this output of a lasting, widespread confusion is a defining feature of the Catholic system as it exists. And it has been this way as long as there has been any Trinitarian theology. The relatively new and baffling formulas of the Nicene Creed were made mandatory by a collusion of bishops and the Roman Emperor in 381, and even then most Christians were not of one mind on the topic. By mandating words whose meaning was unclear, they in effect required Christians to parrot formulas they in many cases didn't understand enough to agree or to disagree with. The language was made mandatory before there was sufficient agreement about its meaning. This is how the system has always worked, and that's how it is today. The system requires that most Christians wander in a low information state about the topic, while their leaders assure them that these truths, whatever they are, are of the utmost importance and can be denied or ignored only at one's eternal peril. Some paper Trinitarians will self-comfort with just-so stories about the history of theology, 
they will tell themselves, This is a settled matter. We Christians put our best minds together, our best theologians and other scholars, and they had some meetings and prayerfully, carefully, and soberly worked these things out. My friends, I have some bad news for you. The more one knows about the early history of theology, the less this little story seems true. It looks like things might very easily have turned out differently, and the key figures are not exactly a bunch of objective, humble scholars. If you don't want to take my word for it, you can read R.P.C. Hansen's magisterial treatment of 4th century developments in theology in his book called The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God. So the paper Trinitarian will say the required words in some contexts, with only vague and shifting ideas about what it all means much more so in church traditions which recite older creeds, although it's far from clear that most of them have enough beliefs to count as Trinitarian. Such a person is a trusting consumer. Lay people generally assume that their pastor, or someone higher up on the leadership ladder, bishop, pope, apostle, great theologian, someone must have all of this sorted out. Someone must have a settled and coherent view about what the doctrine of the Trinity amounts to, and how exactly one can derive this from the Bible, and where in the history of Christian theology this doctrine originates. Does it originate with the pre-Christian Jews? Does it come from the first century or the fourth century? But alas, the overwhelming majority of pastors and other leaders are paper Trinitarians too. Most of the shepherds are as lost as their sheep. They too avoid the subject as much as they can get away with, because they find it all incredibly confusing. A minority of these leaders, though, and a small percentage of other Christians, have moved on to the second stage. I did this myself around the end of my high school career, as many young people do who are consumers of popular apologetics. You see, there's a large body of apologetics literature out there which offers to give you quick expertise on the doctrine of the Trinity, showing you exactly how such a theology is implied by the Bible. This seductive literature can be mastered by a determined high school senior. It makes you think that you can, through it, distinguish yourself from the confused masses and even be a teacher on this topic. Simply believing that you've mastered this causes one to act like an authority on the subject and immediately raises one's social standing in the community. You have the answers, the Bible answers, the classic Christian answers. Everyone should have the answers. Therefore, everyone should listen to you. Moreover, the answers are pretty easy, so you set out to teach them. Perhaps you get your own YouTube channel or a blog to spread this newfound expertise. This literature counsels you that the doctrine is rather easily understood and can be rather easily defended against charges that it is incoherent and that it can rather easily be seen to be implied by claims made in the Bible. Such literature does a great disservice to its consumers, as all three of these claims are demonstrably false because of those rather easy clauses. But they're things that people want to hear, so let's take them in order. One widely read book assures its readers that the Trinity is the doctrine that, quote, within the being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, end quote. All of the bolded terms here are unclear. 
different Trinity doctrines will result if they are made more specific in various ways. More on this later. The point is that this short formulation might be understood in several different ways, a point which seems lost on the author. In chapter 12 of his book, Dr. White offers a much longer definition, which is nonetheless just about as unclear. But he carries on for the first 11 chapters with this clear-as-mud, one-sentence definition of, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, which he endeavors to show is clearly implied by the Bible. As to coherence, showing that a Trinity doctrine is not self-contradictory, this literature proudly serves up what I have called the standard opening move. It goes something like this. We're not saying anything incoherent because we're not saying that God is three persons and also that God is exactly one person. And we're not saying that God is three beings and yet only one being. Nope. We are saying that God is three persons, but one being or essence. Now, this is a trivial defense. Of course, anyone who bothers to criticize some Trinity theory knows this already that they're saying three persons and one essence. And for all that's been said, there might or might not be some contradiction which is implied by your theology. Also, what is meant here by person and what is meant by being or essence? The answers might matter to questions of coherence. About the Bible, this literature assumes and asserts what I call the deduction delusion. This is the view that, while the Bible isn't explicitly Trinitarian, as it literally lacks the requisite words for explicitly talking about God as the Trinity, still, it is clearly implicitly Trinitarian in that whatever the essence of the Trinity doctrine is, it is clearly implied by statements which actually are in the Bible. By the way, we know this isn't true in the following way. Obvious and clear implications of a text are grasped more or less right away by competent readers. We don't see any doctrine of a triune God in Christian tradition until the last half of the 300s, so more than 300 years after Pentecost. Triune God speculations arose only after earlier speculations about there being a second God in addition to the one true God, the Father, and then monarchian reactions against that— but that's the story for another day. Back to the deduction delusion, how can one start with actual biblical statements and then logically infer that the one God is the Trinity? An apologist will typically, following the Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield, dumb down the Trinity doctrine into three or four simple statements. Again, Dr. James White writes, there is only one God, there are only three divine persons, And then third, the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. But this careless formulation bristles with problems. Does this vaunted doctrine really amount to only these three claims? Later in the book, he gives us at least six claims. And where is the triune God in all of this? Is the whole Trinity the one God? These vague statements, which White calls the three foundations of the Trinity, don't say. Does the Bible actually teach that there are three quote, divine persons? What is a divine person anyway, if that's something different than a God? And which, if any, of those divine persons is the unique God? All three of them? Doesn't the New Testament tell us clearly and repeatedly that the Father is the only true God? Amazingly, Dr. White asserts that these three statements by themselves show why any Christian who believes in the Bible must therefore believe in 
the Trinity. The alleged demonstrations that the Bible is implicitly Trinitarian always turn out to be unclear and difficult. They are never as advertised clear and easy. Now, when you're living out the defender phase, you will find that many of the people you try to persuade aren't exactly impressed with your arguments. You're convinced that you're raining down deadly fire upon them, but it's clear to them that you're shooting blanks. Here's where arrogance comes into play. This ideology has taught you that the Bible is obviously Trinitarian, and that there should be no worries about the coherence of the doctrine. Yet these people are unmoved by your ingenious arguments. Perhaps you should say them more loudly and act more aggressively. Perhaps you should slander these people as God-haters, rationalists, deniers of the obvious, cultists, or just tragically unspiritual people in comparison with yourself. Or maybe they're just stupid. What else could explain why they're not persuaded, right, when the reasons are so compelling? Well, maybe your arguments aren't as strong as you thought they were. Now, if you decide to actually think about these topics, you may be able to move on to the next stage of Trinitarian commitment. Many people are able to do this in their 20s or 30s, but the loudest defenders on the internet are not 18-year-old boys, but rather fully grown men who have become dependent on the status boost and career options that one gets from setting oneself up as a public defender of the doctrine of the Trinity. If you see someone online arguing aggressively about the Trinity, and they constantly heap contempt and derision on their real or imagined opponents, and they seem to have a huge ego and an arrogant bragging and bullying manner that your wife or girlfriend can't stand to watch for five minutes, that is one of these defenders. Now, they're not all that badly behaved, but this is a mark of many of the well-known ones. They're serving a certain segment of the public what that public enjoys. One well-known defender, Dr. James White, published a readable, decently informed, if not very well-argued, beginning-level book on the Trinity in 1998. And since then, he has ignored boatloads of relevant literature, explaining how Trinity theories first arose, exploring contextual first-century readings of allegedly Trinitarian texts, and distinguishing between clashing Trinity theories, which must be evaluated differently. He imagines that he has unmatched exegetical prowess and has only a cold and settled contempt for anyone who won't simply accept his rickety arguments. In his view, the people who don't agree with him must just be unregenerate sinners. When asked to clarify what he thinks the Trinity is, he will only repeat the traditional formulas as if those were clear. At this point, he's long given up on actually learning more about these subjects, but you can learn a lot more than he cares to, as I'll explain momentarily. Another defender, Dr. David Wood, despite his PhD in philosophy, also ignores a wealth of literature in the last 40 years or so in which Christian philosophers and theologians try to interpret the standard but unclear Trinity language into actual claims that can be argued for, defended, or objected to. Being a YouTube star is more fun than studying that literature, so he contents himself with recycling standard talking points. Like many defenders, he likes to focus on Muslims. Their apologists have always considered the Trinity to be an easy target. He relentlessly rehashes low-quality apologetics arguments, but it somewhat works as he is a natural-born polemicist and effectively uses mockery and derision. This is what defenders do 
They're essentially propagandists trying to push their audience into agreement. They're more concerned with the effect of their arguments than the intellectual quality of those arguments. The most well-known defenders are not, most of them, real scholars in any relevant field who have published scholarly books or peer-reviewed articles in relevant journals. They prefer the glory of being a defender to the hard work of understanding complex issues. If I sound like I'm being harsh on this group, I am. But blameworthiness is relative to what one knows or to what one should know. This defender stage in a serious Christian kid aged 16 to 25 is natural, maybe inevitable. I am all sweetness and light in having a friendly argument with such folks. This stage is an attempt to go beyond confusion. It's the first step out of being a mere paper Trinitarian, and I became one of these defenders, although not a public or famous one, at about the age of 17, and stayed there until around the age of 29. But in a fully grown and fully educated person, this position demands a deliberate and studied ignorance of a wealth of relevant literature, particularly in analytic theology, the history of Christian theologies, and biblical studies. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what does it take to grow beyond the defender stage? Stage three, one is an interpreter of the Trinity. What analytic theologians have done, most of them having PhDs in philosophy, is to analyze traditional Trinity language, making that language more specific so as to express an understandable position, an understandable theory, which can then be defended as coherent and, it is hoped, shown to be a good fit with the Bible and with later traditions such as the ecumenical councils. They don't necessarily claim that their interpretation of the traditional language is obviously correct or that it should be mandatory, but they are suggesting a defensible interpretation of said language. If you are willing to engage with this literature, you will see that in a sense there is no one doctrine of the Trinity, but rather the traditional vague language serves to hide differences between some very different theologies. All you need to make a step beyond the mere defender stage is to carefully study a free encyclopedia article or two which surveys this serious and carefully argued literature. One entry is by Dr. Harriet Baber from the University of San Diego. Another is by Dr. Daniel Howard Snyder from Western Washington University. And a third, the longest of the three, is by yours truly. The authors of these pieces are not necessarily interpreters themselves, but they are summarizing literature by people who are interpreters, typically Christian professors of philosophy and or theology. Some famous examples of interpreters are the well-known apologist Dr. William Lane Craig, Oxford professor Dr. Brian Leftow, emeritus professor from Huntington University in Indiana Dr. William Hasker, and Dr. James Anderson from Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
All of these are accomplished scholars and are, as they say in Rhode Island, wicked smart. They all have realized that there is no one obvious meaning to traditional Trinity language and that different competing suggestions have been made. And so they weigh in with their own interpretations of the traditional language. Let me just quickly run through them, summarizing in one sentence how each one thinks we should understand traditional Trinity language. For Dr. Craig, the persons of the Trinity are, he says, three centers of consciousness, three parts which in a sense compose the one soul, which is God. Dr. Leftow holds to what I call a one-self theory of the Trinity, on which the one God eternally and essentially lives his life in three different ways, which somehow implies the existence of three persons in the one self who is God. For Dr. Hasker, the persons of the Trinity are three divine selves, and they are so unified in their shared actions that it is as if they composed a fourth self, the Trinity, although they don't. The Trinity is a highly unified, quasi-personal collective of these three divine intelligent agents. Dr. Anderson argues against any interpretation of Trinity language which is supposed to be free of apparent contradictions. He argues that the doctrine of the Trinity, rightly understood, involves merely apparent but not real contradictions, but nonetheless, it can be known and reasonably believed in despite being apparently incoherent. This realm of scholarship is largely devoid of the rough rhetoric, shoddy arguments, verbal aggression, and crass egotism which plague the crowd of defenders. At the same time, I think most of these scholars think of themselves as defenders. They don't always realize how different what they're doing is from what the mere defenders do. But what they're doing is very different. They're taking the risk of putting forward understandable claims which can potentially be refuted and which can expose them to a lot of suspicion. Mere apologists, the defenders, want nothing to do with this literature. For one thing, the mere existence of this scholarship shows the folly of believing that there is one doctrine, one theology of the Trinity, which most Christians have long believed. For another, this work exposes the falsity of the assumption that traditional Trinity language is as clear as we could hope it to be. It could be made a lot clearer in various ways. For another, these guys know how to put together an argument, whereas most defenders don't. Whereas a defender, if he self-markets well, can make a living and attain a certain popular fame, for the most part, these actual scholars, by comparison, toil in obscurity. The Easy Answers crowd doesn't like them, as their publications require actual hard work to digest, and they usually avoid crowd-pleasing rhetoric. Now, what about professional theologians? Surely they would welcome these serious and sustained attempts to clarify how one ought to interpret the traditional language. Interestingly, most theologians want nothing to do with the interpreters. They like the more traditional, obscure language and are not concerned enough about the truth of the matter to want it to be clarified. They like things unclear. It means that people must crawl to them for some shred of understanding. They're not concerned to attain the level of clarity needed to actually rationally evaluate competing Trinity theories. Here we should distinguish those trained mainly in systematic theology from those trained mainly in biblical studies. 
The systematic people are wedded to the idea that there is one, quote, doctrine of the Trinity, which all Christians have always been committed to, uh, if not from the beginning, then at least from, quote, early times. And they are proud that they can speak the discourse of three hypostases and one usia, and that they can tell you the difference between the homoousians, the homoousians, and the homoians. And many of them love to celebrate the Trinity as a holy mystery and will urge that somehow human language is just inadequate, so that we will always be beset with mysteries, whatever those are. They can see differences between different accounts of the Trinity, but they tell themselves that these are just differences of emphasis, perhaps resulting from different starting points. Because again, there must be one doctrine of the Trinity. Analytic theologians have tried in earnest for more than a decade now to win over the systematic theologians, but most of them still completely ignore the sort of scholarship surveyed in those three encyclopedia entries and want no part in what the interpreters are trying to do. They prefer academic work in theology, which uses the far inferior tools of recent continental philosophies, or which tries to stick with philosophical ideas and terminology from the times of Augustine or Aquinas. As to those trained mainly in biblical studies, many of them know and will sometimes openly say that the theologies and Christologies of the traditional creeds have nothing to do with interpreting the writings of the Old and New Testaments. They can see that those creeds, with their Trinitarian language, are firmly ensconced in most Christian traditions, and most of them see no point in trying to clarify them, and they see that arguments that the Bible actually implicitly teaches some Trinity theory are patently anachronistic and never work. Most interpreters, God bless them, are assuming what they've been told by apologists and by systematic theologians, which is that in some sense the Bible is implicitly Trinitarian, and so that at least the building blocks, maybe most or all of the component claims of a Trinity theory, are there to be found. Many will have, as young people, read the kind of apologetics literature I described above, and they may be assuming that its arguments are basically on the right track, even if they don't answer all the questions. In a kind of misplaced, over-trusting humility, they assume that surely there are strong reasons why any biblical theology must be in some sense Trinitarian, but one should leave that up to the professionals, and the theologians seem pretty sure about this. In my experience, most interpreters have not thought critically about these arguments from the Bible to some Trinity theory or other. They prefer to stay in the safer realm of competing Trinity theories, where one assumes that somehow the Bible demands some Trinity theory or other. Interpreters are more equipped to compare current theories than they are to rightly interpret 2,000-year-old writings in their original contexts. Eventually, though, some start to examine that assumption. For me, I encountered writings by seemingly smart, informed, and godly Christians of the early modern era who held the view that, no, in the Bible, the one God is the Father, not the Trinity. They showed me that a triune God is never mentioned in the Bible, and they argued compellingly that no triune God claim is ever assumed or implied in those books. If you're at the interpreter stage, rather than reading books from 1680 or 1738 or 1852, I recommend that you check out a couple of my Trinity's podcasts, namely number 189, where I show that there is strong evidence that New Testament authors are not assuming that God is the Trinity, 
and Podcast 260, where I show, contrary to the oversimplifications of Warfield and many others, how difficult it really is to start with the Bible and actually deduce enough claims to have a Trinity theory. Eventually, you realize that the rhetoric of most Protestant theologians doesn't match with reality. Their official ideology is that theology should be based on the Bible. But in practice, they simply won't consider any view unless it's consistent with the Catholic creeds from 381 and 451 from the so-called ecumenical councils. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how does one move from stage three to stage four? Eventually, you start to see how hard it is to deduce any Trinity theory from the Bible, despite the confident assurances of the apologists and the systematic theologians. You start to see how historical critical interpretation, basically reading the biblical books in their historical contexts, simply takes away most of the traditional proof texts. It turns out that they all make sense without anachronistically bringing in later ideas. And then you have to decide just how Protestant you are. You have entered the lonely, unglorious, and painful stage of being a Berean Trinitarian. Someone who wants to be only as Trinitarian as the Bible is, and who therefore is willing to reopen the issue of whether the Bible is compatible with Trinity theories, or even requires one. To go here, you must ask yourself, am I only giving lip service to the Bible, or am I really willing to choose it over later traditions when the two conflict? Here, the two actually do conflict. If the one God just is the Trinity, it's false that the one God just is the Father alone. And if the one God just is the Father alone, then any triune God theory is false. On this, you can see my Trinity's podcast 248. So which, if either, does the Bible, and let's be honest, the New Testament, teach? Honestly, it's not that hard to tell. Once you realize this, and actually agree with New Testament theology as against later triune God theories, you are no longer a Trinitarian in your theology. But you still are socially in the officially Trinitarian realm. You're a Trinitarian ex-Trinitarian. In my experience, many just go on happily to the next stage, more or less immediately, But others linger for quite some time here as they understand the privileges of being in the Trinity Club. If you're such a person, you're now in what the Simpsons' Ned Flanders would call a dilly of a pickle. If you're a theologian or professor at a Christian institution, or if you aspire to be such, you can't let it be known that you agree with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul about this. 
you observe that everyone who wants to be a part of the evangelical scene or the Catholic or Orthodox or Reformed scenes must salute the Trinity language every so often, whatever they actually think. This is all that's ever been required for membership in the Trinity Club. The system works on what you'll, in various ways, say yes to. You will probably have to agree with an extremely vague Trinitarian statement of faith, or at least assure people that you are a, quote, Trinitarian. The sociological pressures here are incredibly strong. Your social standing, and perhaps even your livelihood, depend on membership in the Trinity Club. You may fear that it is a kind of social suicide to admit that Trinity theories get the Bible wrong, and it's unthinkable that you should use the U-word, Unitarian, to describe your views. To do this is to tattoo a giant red U on your forehead. You can't be hired by any mainstream Christian church or educational institution. You can't speak at events, and Christian publishers will not touch your books with a 10-foot pole. You'd be a theological leper. At this point, many will choose to keep their heads down. They are now aware of the privileges afforded by membership in the Trinity Club and can see that there is a steep practical price in coming out as a non-Trinitarian Christian. After all, you got those degrees and you landed that job and your family depends on your having that job and or access to these venues. I was here around 2002 to around 2007, although it took me a while to realize it. It wasn't that hard for me to move on, honestly, as I had an academic job at a secular university, and for whatever reason, I'm the sort of person who doesn't care all that much about what others think. It would have been much harder if I were more embedded in the evangelical establishment. I did, after coming out, to some extent get blackballed in the Christian professional academic circles I then inhabited. But I threw caution to the wind, and I did what many, many others have done before. I became a Unitarian Christian whistleblower, someone who wants everyone to know what I've, after much work, learned about the New Testament. That there in the New Testament, the one God is the Father alone, not the Father, Son, and Spirit. God's Messiah is a man, the unique servant of the one God, the God of Israel, and the Spirit is just that. It's God's Spirit. It's no more a person in addition to God than your spirit is a person in addition to you. And the personification of God's spirit in various texts are only that, personifications. Traditions have misled us on these matters, and we need further reformation using the guidance of the New Testament. But one can stay at this Trinitarian, ex-Trinitarian stage indefinitely. Some people have a lot to lose, but... Honestly, some people just aren't very brave and greatly fear the real or imagined consequences. To stay here, you simply keep your head down and leave matters vague. You can say most, if not all, of the traditional language, mentally giving it your own interpretation, and let people believe that you, like all good Christians, supposedly believe in the triune God. If you like, you can carefully define the word Trinitarian so that your views count as Trinitarian even though you don't believe that in the one God there are three divine persons. After all, ever since the term Trinity was introduced around the year 180, some have understood the Trinity not to be a triune God, but rather a heavenly triad consisting of God, a.k.a. the Father, and then His Son and His Spirit, whatever exactly that is. In this way of speaking, God is not the Trinity, but rather the founding member of it. So just keep your head down. You can fit into the broad Trinitarian tradition. Ignore the topic, go about your normal work, and hope that no one presses you on exactly what you mean when you say that you're Trinitarian. 
But if you do this, you're choosing your own status and perhaps also more tangible goods over truth. You're staying on the sidelines while the New Testament is routinely misread and your silence contributes to a culture of confusion. The system that ensures that most Christians fear looking into the subject and are just blown about by inconsistent ideas. Now thinking this, now thinking that. You're standing with Catholic traditions, going back to that 381 Council, against the apostolic message of the New Testament books. You're choosing Calvin over Paul, Augustine over John, Aquinas over Matthew, Gregory of Nyssa over Mark, and Gregory of Nazianzus over Luke. Like Calvin and Luther, you're as much a disciple of certain church fathers as you are of the apostles. Like the Council of Trent, you're aiding and abetting the forces that hold and check the badly needed processes of reformation, of correcting Christian traditions by the light of the Bible. How will you face Jesus? How will you explain why you chose reputation over the message of Jesus' hand-picked messengers? You used to think you could have it both ways, Paul and Calvin, John and Augustine, but now you can see the conflicts between the New Testament and triune God's speculations. This is your time to spend your influence. Will you use your voice? Will you say no to confused and confusing post-biblical traditions? If so, whether or not you use the you word, you're a Unitarian Christian. Welcome. It's not a currently popular place to be, but you will enjoy a good conscience and good fellowship, and you are now free to discuss the fact that New Testament theology and Christology actually make sense on their own, without the help of later ideas. You can pull up a seat, stay, and enjoy the view. The New Testament authors are not darkly hinting at a triune God. Paul and company are not murmuring occult authors who hide their deep mysteries from the masses by encoding them as an obscure subtext which can be discerned only by the privileged few. We can now focus on what these authors focus on, the astounding fact that a man can be God's Messiah, the man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him, whom the prophet John calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The man who, incredibly, God has appointed to judge the world, and who has been exalted to rule at God's right hand. You'll need a new support network. Many of your friends will choose for the time being to stay in the Trinity Club. The spell of fear will not be broken until many other insider whistleblowers loudly leave, and everyone can see that their faith and witness are intact. Just as 16th century Christians needed to see that there could be Christianity outside the Roman Church, 21st century people need to see that there is Christianity outside the Trinity Club. Let me suggest that you get a free membership in the Unitarian Christian Alliance, which can help connect you to other like-minded believers. There are, in fact, many lovely Unitarian Christians out there, and they need the gifts that God has given you. The UCA tolerates various positions on other areas of Christian disagreement, such as church government, spiritual gifts, political involvement, or the right way to understand the book Revelation. We'll put you in touch with Christian churches, denominations, and Bible studies. We encourage you to examine other traditional assumptions, too. Many other UCA members and groups can help you with that. We want you to stand with us whether you choose to be a voice for reform in your current group or whether you're looking for a new group such as the Church of God General Conference, which I'm grateful to be a part of. In my experience, no one who has gone through all six stages then goes all the way backwards. 
However, people may backslide by a stage. Most commonly, in youthful enthusiasm, they try their hand at being a heroic defender, but for various reasons they slink back into the paper Trinitarian masses. One does encounter a few people who were raised in Unitarian Christian groups, who then go from stage six, which they were born into, to stage two, being a defender of whatever they suppose the doctrine of the Trinity to be. Such people were likely raised on a lot of useless anti-Trinitarian rhetoric and some dodgy arguments, and when they reach the age where they have to think for themselves, typically in their 20s, they suddenly discover the worlds of Trinitarian apologetics, Trinitarian systematic theology, and sad to say, Trinitarian biblical studies, and they rather uncritically eat it all up like it's a delectable forbidden fruit. Others, again, usually those raised as Unitarian Christians, will go backwards from six to five, to the realm of non-Trinitarian Trinitarians, thinking they can do more good if they hide their convictions. Never having been in it, to them, Trinity Club membership starts to look pretty good, but they're not too aware of its serious downsides, nor of how much of their honesty they'll have to trade in. As I mentioned, some people will skip some of these stages. Some of them are oneness Pentecostal Christians. They never were in the Trinity Club, so that doesn't hold them back. And often they are serious students of Scripture who do not idolize the likes of Augustine or Calvin or the ancient Gregories. They'll go straight from oneness to being a Unitarian Christian. In that sense, their oneness heritage is a blessing that saves them from the pitfalls and agonies of stages two through five. A larger number of stage skippers are Bible-oriented evangelical lay people. They are not particularly impressed with the defenders they run across, and may actually read enough biblical scholarship to see that most of the defenders' arguments are not very good and that most of them are marginal scholars at best. Nor are they consumers of analytic theology, they don't see the point of analytic philosophy generally, nor are they impressed with the great ecumenical councils, nor are they afraid to disagree with great historical theologians like the so-called fathers, so they skip the interpreter stage and they'll go straight from being a paper Trinitarian to being a Berean Trinitarian, and being lay people, they don't care too much about membership in the Trinity Club, so they can quickly move on to being Unitarian Christians. If there's going to be widespread reformation on this topic, I think that a large portion of these people will need to side with the New Testament, just as many faithful 16th century Catholics sided with the more biblical Protestants over the less biblical Roman Catholic Church. Will you stand with us? Will you stand with New Testament teaching over confused and confusing later traditions? Finally, Let's take notice of one more pathway away from stage one, from being paper Trinitarian to being an ex-Christian atheist or agnostic. Now, it's usually other issues which are the main motivation for people who are raised Christian and then decide to be unbelievers, things like the problem of evil, abusive churches or families, biblical inerrancy, evolution versus Genesis as often understood. But for many such people, the Trinity doesn't make sense and they see it as part of a larger pattern of teachings which don't make sense, but are nonetheless held up as holy and important things which you must believe, or at least which you must say you believe. If you help the young people around you to understand these issues, you're helping them to avoid this kind of spiritual wipeout. Very often, these new atheists and agnostics were smart Christian kids who were told to shut up and stop asking questions about religious things. Answer their questions. Help them to ask better questions. 
and don't stop loving them if they go through a season of this, whether temporary or permanent. So where in this scheme are you? Are you willing to consider the next stage? Why or why not? I encourage you to keep studying, keep praying, keep returning again and again to Scripture to see what it says and what it does not say, as opposed to what people say it says. And notice that there are disciples of the Lord Jesus at each one of these six stages. Even if you think they've gone too far, and even if you think they've not gone far enough, it's your job to love them. May God guide and bless you as you figure out how to do that. Thanks for listening. Be sure to let us know what you think by leaving a comment on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also, be sure to check out that blog post for links to other relevant episodes of the Trinities podcast. This week's thinking music has been the track Lionitha by John Bartman. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. And if you'd like to support the Trinities podcast on a per-episode basis, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.